It is good to be with you, Covenant College. I know you have midterms. I know you're tired. I don't care. We have a lot to talk about, and I'm really excited. But you're going to have to work. You're going to have to think. So let's pray. Our Father, would you... Help us to see the glory of your Son in and through and by your Spirit. Rekindle our love and help us to taste shalom. In the name of the risen King, we pray. Amen. I want to talk about love. Love is a very simple word. The problem with simple words is we think we know what they mean when we often haven't really thought about it, right? In particular, I want to think about this, you know, what does it mean for God to, to love us, for us to love God? I'll never forget when my kids were little, like in elementary school, and they lived in the same room, and uh, some of you may remember this kind of thing growing up, but, you know, at the end of the, the night, I would go upstairs with them, and I'd read them a little Bible story, and I would pray with them, you know, and then, and then I would get to wipe my hands clean and leave, right? And then I could finally rest for the night. But my, my kids, even though they didn't know what theologian meant, they quickly learned that as long as they asked questions about God, I'd stay, right? You remember that? Because as a kid, that's when you finally want to talk is at night because you don't want to go to bed. And so it won't surprise you that one night as I had, you know, done my stuff and I was, my back was to the kids and I was walking out the door, I heard my little son, who's now a freshman here, Jonathan said, Papa, I have a question. And the honest truth was I didn't want to look back. I just wanted, dude, I'm going to watch ESPN. No, no questions taken today. But I could tell there was something in his voice at the time. And so I turned around. And as I turned around, he said, I don't know if I love God. When your kid who's like six year old says, I don't, I don't know if I love God. And then that's a great question. And then as I started to walk towards him, he said, I love you and mama. But I don't, I don't know if I love God. And behind it, I can't remember exactly his next words. But the fundamental question was, I don't even know what it would mean to love God. And the truth is. I don't care if you're six or 60. That's actually a really hard question, isn't it? Because around here in, Christ, in churches, we always say, like, love God. I love God. You love God. You should love God. Like, what in the world does that actually mean? So we're going to talk about that today. Here is, as some of you know, so one of the reasons I speak uh, on this regular basis is part of my role here. Um, with the endowed scholar thing I'm involved in is that I kind of give updates and, on things I'm researching and thinking about. And I'm currently writing this book on a theology of the Christian life. And today I'm introducing you one of the three thesis statements that's going to guide the whole book. And here it is. The, uh, the, this is a, the big thesis. You are never more like the Father than when you love the incarnate Son in the spirit. Just trust me. 
Every word there, you are never more like the Father than when you love the incarnate. I don't know if you know what the word incarnate means. It means the Son of God becoming, taking on flesh, becoming genuinely, truly human. You're never more like the Father than when you love the incarnate Son and the Spirit. So what I want to do today is I can't unpack that. I need 30 hours, not 30 minutes. But I want to give you a taste of what we're talking about. And it is going to be some work. But some of you guys are studying physics and history and philosophy and whatever. You should be willing to think hard about God, right? So in our time together, I want to to talk about creation. I want to talk about Jesus. And I want to talk about loving Christ. Let's start with this. Here's my first observation. So I gave you the thesis that we're working with. But here's observation one, and then I want to unpack it. Observation one, creation is the overflow of God's love. All creation with humanity at its center is meant both to reflect and participate in God's love. And when this happens, it is what we call shalom. Let me help you understand what I mean. Part of what is so distinctive about Christianity is that we believe God is love. You may be so familiar with that, you don't understand how distinctive it is. We don't believe that God just expresses love. We believe that God is love. From all eternity, the Father loves the Son in the Spirit. One God pulsating in Trinitarian love. God perfectly whole, perfectly satisfied, perfectly complete. This is why it matters. You need to know that God is love. He's, God is good. You know what I mean? You know, you ever meet someone who's good with themselves and you're like, oh, it's nice to be with you because you're comfortable being who you are. God is comfortable being who he is. He is full. He is complete. He is love. Now you need to understand that in order to rightly understand creation. God does not create the world in order to meet some need he has. God doesn't create the world because he needs things to to praise him. He is not, put it this way, God is not some narcissistic celebrity who just needs mindless fans praising him. I I don't know if you know this, but let me, let me be clear. God, we do, put it, we do not praise and worship God because he needs it. Did you know that? Do you know why we praise and worship God? Because he's worthy. That's why we praise and worship him. We praise and worship him because if we don't, we are denying reality. We distort our relationship to the creator and all of his creation when we live in that denial. So creation is this overflow of God's love. And so from the beginning, that creation, everything that's not God, is meant to both reflect and participate in God's love. When that's happening... It's what the ancients would call shalom. Shalom. This is a very important idea. Now, in our day, some of you know the word shalom. We often translate it as peace. The problem is when we think about peace and we talk about God's peace, I will just tell you we tend to reduce it to psychological internal peace. 
That's what we think. We kind of think the Christian life is basically helping you with your psychological issues. Let me just tell you, Christianity is not less than that, but it is most definitely more than that. This peace is not merely about something going on inside of you. It is about wholeness. It is about, and biblically, it's about, um, you know, it's earthier, it's dynamic. It's, it's about um, fullness, harmony, well-being. And humans have a particular role in God's creation that it, we are meant to foster that kind of wholeness and harmony and shalom as the pinnacle of creation. Now, the next thing I want you to understand is shalom is not like, you know, at home, there's a picture of you and maybe your siblings or your parents or something like that, and you kind of have that picture up on the wall, and you look at it and go, oh, that's really nice. Shalom is not that static picture where you go, oh, that's really nice. Shalom is vibrant, life-giving, dynamic. It is never meant to be a static reality, but something that is life-giving, harmonious. It is about the goodness of God's creation. And what you need to know with shalom is that love is the oxygen and energy of shalom. Love is the oxygen and energy of shalom, and this makes us need to talk about sin. Now, I know you're familiar with this stuff so far, but let's think about this. Sin is some kind of like a poison or a virus that affects every aspect of shalom, from our heads to our hearts, but also from the earth to our political systems. We're seeing that in vivid colors even right now. Now, don't mistake, everything is not terrible. Everything is not terrible. But everything in creation now has been tainted by the poison of sin. Things are not as they should be. And because of that, shalom is elusive. Don't you feel it? You, you feel moments of good and then something ruptures it, something disturbs it. You get a taste and then it pulls away. You start to like that person and then all of a sudden you see a cruelty in them, whatever it is. The result of sin, as you know, is now we have this reality of a broken relationship with God, with our neighbor, with the earth, and even in ourselves. And so as the Bible says, all of creation groans, and we groan. It disorders everything from nationalism run amok to dysfunctional families, from racism to injustice, from sexual abuse to isolation, from my own greedy heart to the cancer deteriorating the bodies of those I love. And because of the poison of sin, shalom seems more like a fairy tale. But now I can finally talk to you about Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment and object of God's love. Here's the question. How does Jesus fit into this story we all know so well? Right? 
I told you that creation is the overflow of God's love. Recreation, where God makes it new, is also the overflow of God's love. So that the Father sends the Son and the Spirit to become, you heard this phrase, to become man, to become human. We say this all the time. But what does it mean for God to become a human? An early church father put it this way. The Son of God does not cease to be what he was. He doesn't stop being God in order to become what he's not. That is a a man, a human. Listen to this. Mysteriously, paradoxically, the creator somehow becomes the creature. How does that work? How can the creator be creature without stopping being the creator? The short answer is, with the coming of the son, it is God's great yes to his creation. His great affirmation. God who loved what he made didn't stop loving it. And in the sending of the son becoming fully human... God fully embraces his creation. It reaffirms God's commitment to shalom and love. If you're not tracking with me, here's the only point I need you to get so far in this. The creator is the redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. We don't have different gods. We don't have different gods, but the one, cool, the one triune God. So now let's go to the River Jordan. You know, Jesus there in the cool waters. You have the spirit descending on him like a dove. You have the voice of the Father. What does the voice of the Father say? This is my, you guys are so tired right now. I can just feel it. This, should, this talk should have been earlier in the semester when you still had brain power, but whatever. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What is that about? What does it mean that the father says I'm pleased with my son? Because from all eternity, the son is loved by the father. The son loves the father in and through the love of the spirit. What does that mean? Well, I can't unpack it fully for you right now, but I'll just tell you this idea of Jesus as the Son of God in this context is probably primarily pointing to him as Messiah. In the Old Testament, the Son of God was corporate Israel, the nation of Israel. You should be asking, like, why is Jesus being baptized? What sins did he do? These are very interesting questions. So what does it mean that he pleased the Father? I only have time to give you one little hint here. In Psalm 77, verse 7, in the Greek translation, which they would have been using in the first century, you have the same word, therefore, pleased, used. Here's what you read in that psalm. It's a, it's a crying out to God, and it says this. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable Or you can translate it, will God never again be pleased? And then the next verses say this, and maybe you felt this. Has God steadfast love, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Is he never going to love again? 
Are all the promises at an end for all time? Has God, this is the psalmist, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? He's just asking, look, he's in the midst of chaos. When you look at the psalm, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, right? There's terrible things happening. And he knows God is not pleased. Here's the question, what pleases God? You know what pleases God? Shalom. Shalom pleases God. Holy love, righteousness. God is not pleased with sin, rebellion, and chaos in the world. But understand this. The reason God doesn't like sin, and I know, I know how common this is even in this room with thinking. The reason God doesn't like sin is not because God is a grumpy old man. God is opposed to sin because it destroys shalom. God doesn't just like rule keeping for the sake of rule keeping. God is for shalom and sin is against it. And yet somehow the father is pleased with the son. Why? Keep that in mind. Here's another thing to be thinking about. If you ask, this is a test how well you know your Bible. If you ask, what does it mean to love God? Do you know what the biblical answer is? Keep his commandments. Doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? Especially, you know, we're Protestants, we're Reformed. Like, no way, man. What do you mean? Well, it's, it's in red. Jesus is the one who says it, so it has to be true. Right? If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. Well, that sounds harsh to us, but you see, biblically, love is linked with law, commandments, obedience. Rightly understood, love is about loving God and neighbor. And in our cultural moment in history, love is just a flimsy word. It tends to be just nostalgia or, or sentimentality, or, or often it just kind of you love me by having no opinion about anything I think or do. Or love is kind of directionless. It just means that you, you approve and support whatever I do, no matter what. And I will tell you, that does sound very attractive until you try and set up countries and systems like that. I don't care what Putin wants to do. Does loving... Putin mean we have to just approve of whatever he wants to do? So let me jump back to Jesus. Because that stuff matters because it doesn't produce shalom. Here's the question finally. Have you ever thought about why does Jesus being sinless matter? Right? And I'll just tell you, here's, here's my common perception in our circles. Here's the problem. You and I have this long chest checklist of sins, right? And you're in college, so you probably got three that you think of, and you think it's just because of lust and greed. And so you've got three that keeps dying. And just trust me, the list is way longer. But anyways, it's all about this list, right? And so we feel really bad. We're like, oh, my gosh, I've got this list. But don't worry, Jesus came, and the whole time Jesus is walking around, he's got the list, and he's like, oh, be right. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And so Jesus never does any of the bad stuff. So his list is clear, our list is full, 
And so somehow it's just solving an accounting problem. Does that make sense? And I just want to ask you, why does the sinlessness of Jesus matter? Is it really just you have some checklist, he's going to somehow move some numbers around and make it work? No. Jesus is not just interested in, ran- in keeping random and arbitrary rules set up for ancient Israel. Do you know what the purpose of the law always was? Do you know why righteousness matters? It was always meant to promote and point back to God's intention of shalom, of wholeness, of harmony, of peace. Breaking the law was offensive to God, not because he creates random duties, but because it breaks shalom. People get hurt. Sin and rebellion rupture our relationship with God, with each other, and with the earth. The law is simply there to help us see the problem. The, the best way I can, this is a whole other talk, but the very short version is the law functions like a GPS machine. Machine, no one calls it that. Like a GP, GPS, whatever. Okay, now I'll tell you. The law functions like a map. How about that? The law doesn't get you anywhere. It simply tells you where you're at. That's all it does. The law was never intended to get you anywhere. It's simply meant to tell you where you're at and to help you see where you'd want to go. The problem is when you try and use the law, which is a map, and treat it like it's an engine or a car, then you get problems. So when Jesus and Paul speak negatively about the the law, just trust me, I can't tell you, they are not against God's holy law. That's not what's going on. They're against the abuse and the misunderstanding of that law. The Sabbath, for example, Jesus isn't against one day in seven resting as God had commanded. He is against the Sabbath being weaponized on people. And rather than a good gift, it being turned into a brutal weapon. Now here's the stunning part. Jesus does not ignore or reject the law. Just trust it. We're like, the law is bad. No, no, no. That's not actually what the Bible says. Jesus doesn't ignore the law. He doesn't reject the law. What does he do? He fulfills the law. That's actually what it says. He fulfills the law. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus in his sinlessness gives us a glimpse of shalom in the midst of a broken, chaotic world. That's what it's about. Jesus gives us this glimpse of shalom. The map leads to Christ. Christ isn't the map. He's the engine. He's the car. Jesus, who's truly and fully human, perfectly reflects the Father in the Spirit. But he comes into a broken and hurting world. And so for him to bring back shalom, to point to God's goodness, means pushing against a compromised creation. Let me just give you a, a, a quick example. You know, you know what it says... Um, the Bible kind of says in passing, hey, 
great, you love your friends, even the pagans do that, love your enemies. But it's weird because sometimes we treat that like, yeah, it's not good to love your family and friends. That's not what it's saying. It's actually really good when you love your family and friends because that kind of reflects how God made the world. That's how people are supposed to treat each other. But we live in a broken world, so you know what shalom looks like in a broken world. It means not just loving family and friends. It means loving your enemies. It means loving people who irritate you. That is a taste of shalom breaking out further into this broken world. God loves his creation. He meant it for shalom. Love is the energy, the oxygen of shalom. And so evil, hatred, and sin are the enemies of God's love. And all of that to say that the incarnate Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he becomes the embodiment and the object of God's love. He is the embodiment of love and the object of it. And through him, we have recreation. But because it's a sinful, rebellious world, this love must first go in and absorb the poison. Face the darkness of evil and death. Go into the grave in order to explode the grave as the firstborn from the dead. Let's turn to loving Christ. Uh, I still fall for it. Uh. Loving Christ means loving God and his creation. If you've stayed with me, now we can make some connections. Let's go back to that story where Jonathan's asking, what does it mean to love God? In the 17th century, there was a Puritan named John Owen, and it was interesting. He, he, he kind of said, for centuries, and you still have this in your music. I would have used a contemporary reference, but I'm not that cool. But he, he said, musicians, artists, philosophers, storytellers, everybody's captured by love. Everybody talks about love. But no one can take you to its origin, to its source. In the 20th century, however, there are plenty of people who will tell you love has no origin. By that, I mean, it's just a word used to describe a psychological response to evolutionary triggers. But there's certainly nothing, it doesn't point to anything transcendent. Now the reality is maybe such neurological activity can help with the propagation of the species. But when it's all said and done, I think you and I, I think actually almost every human senses love's got to point to something deeper than that. Something fuller, something truer than that, something more, not less. You see, we need to be pointed back to love the very source of love, who is God himself. You and I do not make love. We do not create love. We participate in love. That's what we're doing. 
We're invited to participate in it. And even in our imperfect expressions, which, which by the way, all of them are, imperfect expressions of love, they point back to God, the good creator. Now, here's the big aha if you're with me. What is so unique about Christ as the incarnate son is that he has the ability to heal the world. Not just to heal your soul, but to heal the world. Jesus is unique because he's truly God and truly human. Follow this. In him, the creator and creation come together. And so, to love the incarnate Christ, to love Jesus... We reflect the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit. And we reflect God's love for his creation. The way Paul puts it in Colossians, what Jesus is doing, in his flesh, he's reconciling heaven and earth. To truly love Jesus, to truly love Jesus, you must both love God and his creation track with me. To love Jesus, you must love God and his creation. You can't love Jesus and hate God. But do you know biblically, you can't love Jesus and hate his creation either. The apostle John is unflinching. If you say you love God who you can't see, but you hate your neighbor who you can, you what? You don't love God. Because you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know who the creator is. You don't know how much he loves his creation. So you're, you're loving something, but it's not God. God's love and our love perfectly meet in the incarnate Christ. Julian of Norwich, a 14th century theologian, she said this. God makes us love all that he loves because he loves did you catch that? God makes us love all that he loves because of his love. The way Paul puts it in Romans 5 is that, the, that God's love has been poured into our, into our hearts. How? Through his spirit. His love is poured into our hearts through the spirit of Christ. Loving the creator and the creation go together. So let me end with this. When, when we're told, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, read the passage. It is not about denying or belittling the earth. It is about setting your mind on Christ. And then he goes on to say, you know what it, that means, set your mind on things above? It means put to death evil, wickedness, uh, self-absorption, sin, greed, lust. Because those all break shalom. And by putting your mind on things above, by putting your mind on Christ, you then rightly relate to his creation. And he goes on and says, and this fosters humility, meekness, gentleness, self-control, these kind of things. Putting your mind on Christ, on things above, is not about getting rid of this world. It's about finally rightly relating to it again that shalom may break out. So what does it mean to a six-year-old to love God? It means to snuggle with a labradoodle. It means to wrestle and giggle with a papa. 
It means to have a cold orange on a hot summer day and in all of those activities to be told, this is God's love. It's not something else. And Jesus finally helps us be reconnected to our creator. And by being reconnected to our creator in love and forgiveness, we're reconnected to each other and to his creation. So much more to say. Let me just pray. God, I know the students are tired, busy, but I pray that you would use your spirit to encourage hearts. Would you give us the courage to participate in shalom? Would we be driven by your love? Would we be liberated by it? That can only happen as we bask in the beauty of Christ. Would you make it so? It is in his name we pray. Amen.